The sermon from St. John's Evangelical Lutheran Church of Hancock, Minnesota, preached on February 13, 2011, based on the text of Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 37. Please remain seated. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The word of God for today is the gospel you heard read a little while ago, Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 37. Dear friends in Christ, fellow saints washed clean in the blood of our risen Savior. Tomorrow is St. Valentine's Day, and no doubt if you've been in stores, you've seen a lot of hearts. Heart-shaped boxes, heart-shaped candies, teddy bears uh, holding hearts, maybe even a cupid aiming at a heart. Through the word of God before us here today, Jesus aims at our hearts, but not to make us fall in love with our sweetheart. Rather, in baptism, he gave you a new heart. That's how concerned about your heart he is. He gave you a new heart. But what was wrong with the old? What is the new like? We want to think about those things here today as we take to heart these words of Jesus as we continue this series on the Sermon on the Mount. May the Holy Spirit lead us to ponder what Jesus says here as we focus on the theme. Our new heart cherishes genuine Righteousness. Keep that theme in mind. Now, if you can think back to last week, the last verse that we looked at, the one right before the text here today, Jesus had this to say, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you certainly will not enter the kingdom of heaven. He was talking about righteousness. And as we look at the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they did have a kind of righteousness. They were the best of their day. They had a kind of righteousness because, you see, righteousness means to measure up to what the law requires, to be right in the sight of the law. And they were right according to their interpretation of the law. But how well do you think that's going to fly in a courtroom? Just for example, take traffic court. What would you think if the speeder got up there and said, Yes, judge, I saw that 55 mile per hour sign, but I interpreted it to mean that I shouldn't go 55 miles per hour faster than anyone else. So I kept it under 110. Well, he might think himself righteous in his own eyes. But the judge going to think rather differently and whose opinion really matters in a courtroom. And so Jesus, in the word of God before us today, exposes the false interpretation of the Pharisees as far as God's law goes. And as Jesus does so, he also exposes our hearts, our natural hearts, and the guilt that stains each one of us as sinners. For when we see the right interpretation of God's law, we see that of ourselves, we don't have genuine righteousness. 
Jesus starts with the fifth commandment. That's, that's the easy one, isn't it? You know, have you murdered anyone today? No. And the Pharisees figured that's about as far as the fifth commandment went. That it was simply a regulation that God gave that when someone killed someone else, they could be brought into a court of justice and held accountable. But Jesus aims deeper than that, doesn't he? And really, when you take God's Ten Commandments as a whole, you see that we don't really need Jesus to point out that this is more than just our outward actions. You go through the Ten Commandments and you come to Numbers 9 and 10 that forbid coveting. That's a matter of the heart, isn't it? And we realize that all of God's commandments are not just about outward actions, but actions of the heart. The emotions and feelings and and thoughts that go on inside. We could paraphrase Jesus' words here in, in this way. Yes, they, those Pharisees, say that the fifth commandment only deals with someone who's killed another person, that they are under judgment and can be brought into a court of law. But I tell you, I tell you that even anger in your heart makes you guilty and liable for judgment. And what's more, if that anger expresses itself with words of contempt like raka, then then the highest court in the land should hear it, the Sanhedrin. In fact, if that anger overflows with with name-calling like, you fool, you stupid idiot, such angry name-calling makes the guilty person worthy of the fires of hell. Who of us has that kind of righteousness? Now, Jesus isn't saying that a court on earth is to judge the heart, that that's impossible for a human court. But what Jesus is saying is, rather than being concerned whether you're righteous in a human court or not, think about the courtroom that really matters, where God is the judge who exposes the thoughts and attitudes and emotions of the heart. That's the kind of righteousness we need. And don't think you can excuse yourself by saying, well, my anger is justified. Look, even Jesus got angry with the money changers and merchants at the temple and drove them out of the courtyard. Yes, there is such a thing as righteous anger. Righteous anger flows out of love for God and love for our neighbor. Jesus was filled with zeal for God's house. Those merchants were dishonoring God's name and harming the spiritual worship of God's people. And so love for God and love for his neighbor led Jesus to that righteous anger. Or consider God-fearing parents who become angry with their children's disobedience. That too is righteous anger if it does not come because the parents feel that their child's behavior has given the family a bad name or it's causing them headaches? No. If that anger comes, though, out of love for that child whom they care about and out of love for God who has placed them there as parents to bring up the child in the way of the Lord, then that is righteous anger. And and there are other examples. But what do people usually mean when they say that their anger is 
justified. Isn't it usually something along these lines? Do you know what they did to me? You know how much they hurt me? And, and, and the harm they caused me? I have every right to be angry with them. But friends, that's the very anger Jesus is condemning here as he points to our hearts. For that kind of anger does not flow from love of God or love for our neighbor. It flows out of love of self. I've been hurt. I've been injured. I've been wrong. So i got a right to be angry. That's the kind of anger that wants to lash out with contempt or name-calling or even worse. That's the kind of anger Jesus exposes in each of our hearts. It shows that we lack of ourselves that genuine righteousness God requires. And don't think you can cover up that anger by coming to church or putting on a good show as a Christian. That's what Jesus gets at when he talks about leaving the gift at the altar. Get rid of the anger first. Be reconciled. Think of it like this. If if someone is taking you to court because of a debt that you rightly owe but refuse to pay, don't you think you ought to pay that while you're still on the way? Especially think back to the old days when the judge would throw you into prison until you paid that debt in full. And how long would it take you to pay off debt while you're sitting in a debtor's prison, unable to earn any money? In the same way, Jesus says, be rid of the anger. Repay your debt of love. Don't treat that person as an enemy, but treat him as a friend. Show him love and kindness. Be reconciled. And if the other person refuses to be reconciled, well, you have paid your debt. They have incurred a debt of their own now. But with your debt of love continually being paid as you show love and kindness to others, then come to the altar in peace. You see how this righteousness far surpasses that of the Pharisees? Yes, it far surpasses any righteousness we can work in ourselves, doesn't it? How far we fall short. But what good news you heard last week. As Jesus a few verses earlier said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He has fulfilled the law for you. He has kept it perfectly in your place. His righteousness completely meets the true requirements of God's law. His righteousness stands in God's courtroom and his righteousness counts as your record as you stand before God in faith that clings to Jesus alone. That's the new heart he has given you. That heart of faith that clings to Jesus. Your new heart cherishes the righteousness that comes from Christ because God freely credits it to you as genuine and true. And now, as your heart cherishes the righteousness of Jesus Christ, our hearts also long for righteousness in our own lives. Our hearts cherish a righteousness that that shines out from us, a righteousness in the way we live our daily lives. You've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified. So why... So so get rid of the stain of anger 
makes our hearts impure. Again, think of what Jesus said last week. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. What a way to be salt and light as we lay aside the anger and live a life in righteousness and peace with one another. Yes, that that is hard. Our old heart, our old self that still lingers in us refuses to do that. But remember, Jesus has given you a new heart as well. And no matter how much pain or suffering someone else has caused you, your new heart knows and believes that God works it for good. In fact, the bountiful blessing of your Heavenly Father far outweighs all the insults, harm, and pain anyone on this earth could ever cause you. Just look at the cross and see how your Lord worked good for you despite the insult and pain and suffering that was heaped on Him. Yes, as our new hearts, clothed with Christ Jesus and His righteousness, gaze on our Savior, then our new hearts also want to live that righteous life that lays aside the anger and is reconciled with one another. As our new hearts cherish the righteousness of Jesus Christ, we also cherish righteousness in our own lives. Because your heart, your new heart, has been purified from sinful anger. And having finished with the fifth commandment, Jesus goes on with the sixth commandment. Do not commit adultery. And again, this says much more than simply that spouses shouldn't cheat on each other. The sixth commandment here speaks both to the married and the unmarried. For Jesus makes it clear that any kind of look that comes from lustful intentions breaks the commandment. That is, any lustful look that is not between a husband and his wife. For in marriage, lustful desires and sexual passions are good and God-pleasing when they are between a husband and his wife. But outside of marriage, how impure. How impossible to live a pure life, a completely pure life in a sex-filled world that we live in. It's so tempting to try to excuse ourselves by saying, Something like, you know, how can I help it if my eye wanders every once in a while? But, dear friend, if it's really a problem with your eye, then just pluck it out and throw it away. If that's really what's causing the sin, or, or you know, chop off your hand if that's what's causing the sin. We, we don't hesitate to amputate a part of the body that's infected with gangrene in order to keep the whole body alive a little longer on this earth. How much more if a simple amputation could save us for eternity? problem isn't really with the eye or the hand, is it? It's a matter of the heart. It's a heart problem. This commandment, too, aims at the heart. And, and don't think that you can cover up those lustful thoughts by simply divorcing your current wife and marrying whomever you are currently lusting after. Yeah, that might make it look right in the eyes of the world. But divorce always breaks God's commandment. Either that marriage has already been destroyed by the unfaithfulness of one of the spouses, 
or else the divorce itself is trying to destroy a union that God has joined until death, making one or the other spouse look like an adulterer. Rather, dear friends, let your light shine out and be the salt of the earth. You are salt. You are light. And think of how we can shine out into this dark world that is so filled with lust and sexual passions as we live lives that are that say no to those sins. Yes, this, this is not an easy thing, is it? As long as we are alive on this earth, there will be temptations, sexual temptations all around us. But as Luther quoted, the birds may well fly over us, but we don't have to let them nest in our hair. The temptations may be around us, but we don't need to let them become implanted in our heart. And there are many temptations that we can actually avoid and flee from, aren't there? Just like Joseph fled from Potiphar's wife when she tempted him. Think about this, especially when it comes to matters of entertainment. What kind of movies you watch, what kind of magazines you look at, what kind of jokes you laugh at, what kind of websites you surf, what kind of parties you go to, what kind of music you listen to. They can be ways that at times it feels like we're missing out on some of the fun when we say no to those things that we know will tempt us. But if even losing a hand or an eye is well worth it, if it could actually keep us from sinning, how much more so missing out on some of that superficial fun or false pleasures. Think about that as you listen to some of the things that the Holy Spirit gave the Apostle Paul to write in his epistles here. For example, in Ephesians 5, he says, But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Or 1 Thessalonians 4, It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. And finally, 1 Corinthians 6, Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. In a dark, sex-filled world, what a way to shine out as light. What a way to be salt that slows the decay of the society around us. This is the genuine righteousness that our new hearts cherish. And finally here, as Jesus aims at our hearts and at the righteousness that we produce in our lives through faith in Jesus, he brings us to the second commandment, dealing with the misuse of God's name, in particular in the matter of oaths. Now, sometimes oaths are good and proper when they are necessary out of love for God and his honor or out of love for our neighbor and their well-being. Just think of 
how Jesus let himself be placed under an oath by the high priest when he was asked if he was the Son of God. But the Pharisees, they had developed an elaborate system to determine which oaths were really binding and which were not. Did you swear by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem? Did you actually use God's name or just allude to it? Some oaths you had to keep, others maybe you could get out of. almost sounds like children crossing their fingers behind their backs. Jesus has none of that. He says simply, let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond that comes from the evil one. Yes, live your life. And let your conversation be carried on in such a way that others simply take you at your word. That because your, your speech is always honest and upright, they know that you mean what you say and you say what you mean. That your yes is yes and your no is no. They can take you at your word. You don't need to invoke God's name or call on him as a witness to convince someone that this time you're actually telling the truth. And I think here it, it comes to a, where we need to listen more carefully to the way we ourselves speak. I don't know if it's ingrained in people from little on up because they just hear it all the time, but how often do we, is God's name used and a person doesn't even realize they're doing it? And rather than an excuse, doesn't it make it all the more guilty? That we would use the name of the holy, almighty God, the only name that saves in such a thoughtless way? Jesus Christ, that was a close call. You should have seen the size of that fish by God. Do we really need to call on God as a witness and invoke his name? And for that matter, we don't need to use his name to call down curses on things either. God damn this, God damn that. Rather, dear friends, Listen to what Jesus says here. Yes, it, it's so tempting to dismiss those things. It's no big deal. Everyone else does them, but what does Jesus say? Simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond that comes from the evil one. And you don't want to be the devil's spokesperson, do you? So let your light shine out by the way you speak. Your words are a window into your heart. Jesus has shone into you. He has shattered that darkness that once consumed us from the inside out. Let the light that Jesus has created in you shine out through the window of your words. Reflect the light of Jesus in your conversation. And then as people see that you are a woman or man of your word, that your yes is yes and your no is no, won't they be more ready to listen when you tell them about Jesus, your God and Savior? Yes, our new hearts cherish the righteousness that shines out in our lives because we know that as people see that we are people of our word, they are more ready to listen when you tell them about the righteousness that comes only from Jesus Christ, the only righteousness that saves. For Jesus has kept the law perfectly for us, and he credits it to you 
That's the new heart He has given to you. Amen. Please stand. The peace of God that surpasses all understanding will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.